You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. History isn't black and white, yet too often it's presented as such. Grey History, the French Revolution is a long-form history podcast dedicated to exploring the ambiguities and nuances of the past. From a revolution of hope and liberty to the infamous reign of terror, you can't understand the modern world without understanding the French Revolution. So search for the French Revolution today. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 240, New Southern Strategy. General Sir Henry Clinton remained as commander of military forces in North America over the winter of 1779 and 80. He had remained in New York City since retreating from Philadelphia in 1778, deploying only minor raids since then. He did not have enough forces to launch any major offensive operations because London had directed the redeployment of much of his army and naval support to the southern colonies and the West Indies, what we today call the Caribbean. North America was no longer the biggest priority for London, as the ministry now faced off against the French and Spanish threats all over the world. Clinton did receive some assistance in the return of General Charles Cornwallis in the summer of 1779. Cornwallis had returned to London in late 1778, tendering his resignation, which the king accepted. He returned home to tend to his sick wife, Jemima. Jemima, however, died in February. Cornwallis was distraught and refused to speak to anyone for months. Then, in April of 1779, Cornwallis wrote to Clinton to discuss the possibility of returning to service and to America. Alluding to the recent loss of his wife, Cornwallis wrote, quote, This country has now no charms for me, and I am perfectly indifferent as to what part of the world I may go to. He then went on to say that if the British planned to invade the southern colonies, he would happily participate. So, Cornwallis arrived back in New York in July of 1779. Now, despite this, Clinton remained frustrated that he lacked the manpower to engage in any important campaigns, while London still urged him to embark on just such campaigns. Around this time, a frustrated Clinton vented to one of his young colonels, that he would gladly exchange positions with a grenadier in the infantry and advise the young officer never to seek a command of an army. Clinton had written to London again, requesting to resign his command and return home. He gave Cornwallis detailed access to all of his plans, expecting that Cornwallis would be his successor. Although Cornwallis had said repeatedly that he had no desire to take the North American command, he would do his duty. About a month after Cornwallis's arrival, Clinton wrote to Secretary of State Germain, once again asking to resign. Quote, to say the truth, my lord, my spirits are worn out by struggling against the consequences of so many adverse incidents. Had even the feeble reinforcements which I am still expecting arrived as early as I had thought myself secure, I should have found myself enabled to attempt measures perhaps of serious consequences. Under my present circumstances, if I have not fulfilled the expectation which may have been indulged for the army, 
I trust I shall always find the failure attributed to its just cause, the inadequacy of my strength to its object. Thus circumstanced and convinced that the force under my command at present, or that will be during the campaign, is not equal to the services expected of it, permit me to resign the command of the army to Lord Cornwallis. Back in London, Lord Germain refused to accept Clinton's resignation. There had been a movement in London to give command to General Guy Carleton, but Germain absolutely hated Carleton. Therefore, Germain wanted to keep Clinton in place rather than allow Carleton to take command. Clinton continued to groom Cornwallis, hoping that London might allow Cornwallis to take over and allow Clinton to return home. In September of 1779, Clinton received desperate pleas from Jamaica, which feared an imminent invasion by the French fleet. At that point, remember, the French had just captured St. Vincent and Grenada, and Jamaica feared it might be next. Clinton responded by giving Cornwallis an independent command with 4,000 of his soldiers to deploy to Jamaica. The army boarded ships and left New York. They were only at sea for a few days before receiving word that the French fleet had left the Caribbean and had attacked Savannah. Rather than changing course for Savannah, the fleet simply returned to New York. Soon thereafter, they received word that the siege at Savannah had failed and that the French fleet had left. So Cornwallis and his 4,000 soldiers remained in New York and really didn't do anything else for the rest of the campaign season. Although a new general would not replace Clinton, North America did get a new naval commander. Since the recall of Admiral Richard Howe back in 1778, the Navy had not seemed to have made North America a priority. Howe was supposed to hand off command to Admiral John Byron, but Byron simply sailed off for the West Indies, where he focused on contending with the French Navy. Admiral James Gambier assumed command in North America, but was generally considered incompetent and corrupt. When London recalled Gambier, Commodore George Collier assumed command of the North American fleet. Collier had done a pretty impressive job conducting the Chesapeake raids, supporting the army on the Stony Point actions, and the raids along the Connecticut coast. Collier also led the relief fleet to Penobscot, which we covered a few weeks ago. When Collier returned to New York after his success at Penobscot, he found that Admiral Marriott Arbuthnot had arrived with orders to assume command. As I said, Collier had performed pretty impressively, but he was still rather young, only 41 years old, and not yet an admiral. London believed a more experienced leader was needed in North America. So, Collier returned to Britain for reassignment to another theater, and Admiral Arbuthnot assumed command. The 69-year-old Arbuthnot had a long and slow-moving naval career. He had joined the Navy as a teenager, taking about a decade to make lieutenant. He distinguished himself in the War of Austrian Succession and captained his first ship, a captured prize ship, after nearly 20 years of service. Arbuthnot continued to serve respectably on a series of ships. Just before the Seven Years' War began, he faced a court-martial for using Navy ships for personal use, moving people and equipment for personal benefit. He received a reprimand but continued in office. He also then arrested the purser who had brought the charges against him and had the man clapped in irons on charges of drunkenness and embezzlement. 
During the Seven Years' War, he commanded a ship at the Battle of Kibron Bay and also captured a number of prize ships in the West Indies. In 1775, Arbuthnot became the naval commander at Halifax and also received an appointment as lieutenant governor. London credited him with keeping Nova Scotia loyal as the colonies in the south broke into rebellion. In 1778, he received promotion to rear admiral and was recalled to London. While in London, he sat on the court-martial of Admiral Keppel following the Battle of Ushant. Shortly after that, he received another promotion to vice-admiral and received orders to take command of the North American station. Arbuthnot was delayed in coming to America because of the threats of the French fleet on Britain. After finally leaving for America in May 1779, Arbuthnot received word at sea that the French were attempting to assault the island of Jersey. The admiral took his fleet to Jersey to protect that island. After ensuring the threat was gone, only then did he continue to New York. The result was that Collier had remained in command all summer and that Arbuthnot did not arrive until the fall. The British relief fleet did bring some reinforcements. Clinton received about 3,800 soldiers to add to his garrison. However, they did little to improve the British position in New York. Clinton had to send 2,000 soldiers to Quebec in order to secure that region. The fear caused by France's entry into the war was that the Quebecois might not remain loyal to the British government, absent a show of military might. The end result was that the reinforcements that Arbuthnot brought with him barely covered the losses that Clinton had in New York from his deployment to Quebec. On top of that, the extended sea voyage due to that detour to Jersey had given time for more sickness to spread through the fleet. More than 100 soldiers died at sea before the fleet arrived in New York. In the weeks that followed after arrival, nearly a thousand soldiers were in hospital as a result of the illness that the fleet brought to New York. Clinton had been promised at least 6,000 reinforcements that year. So even a substantial 3,800, which was more than he ever received at any other time, was a disappointment to him. Officials back in Britain, however, were still fearful of an invasion by France and Spain against the home island. Sending too many soldiers to far-off America only weakened defenses at home. British officials also had to contend with the growing unpopularity of the war in America among the British population. Many of those who enlisted in light of the possible French-Spanish invasion did so with the understanding that their service would remain in Britain. When the 71st Highlanders received orders to ship to America as part of Clinton's reinforcements, 60 of them mutinied and refused to march to their transports. Officers called in another regiment to force the mutineers aboard ships, resulting in a fight that left several men dead on both sides. In addition to defending the home island, Britain now faced a siege of its forces at Gibraltar, had already lost Menorca, and had lost several islands in the West Indies. British troops were needed in West Florida to combat the Spanish at New Orleans. Britain was also looking to hit the enemy where they might be weaker. In October of 1779, Britain deployed 1,200 soldiers to attack San Fernando de Amoa a fortress which guarded the captaincy of Guatemala in what is today part of Honduras. 
Britain already had a small island colony called St. George's Cay, just off the coast of what is today Belize. Spain had attacked and destroyed St. George's Cay shortly after Spain declared war against Britain. Afterward, Spanish forces hunkered down at their fortress at Amoa, waiting for the British reaction. Britain initially deployed only a few hundred regulars to force the Spanish out of St. George's, but after finding the forces entrenched at Amoa, they had to send a larger force of about 1,200 men aboard 12 ships to attack the enemy. General William Dalrymple commanded the British assault. The British landed several artillery batteries on shore, backed up by ships' cannons. Then, on October 20th, sent an assault team to sneak into the fort and open the main gates and allow the British forces to assault the surprised enemy. With that, Britain took the fort at Amoa. Of course, that did not end things. Matthias de Galvez, who was Captain General of Guatemala, organized a counterattack. Galvez was the father of Bernardo de Galvez, who was in command of New Orleans at the time. The elder Galvez organized Spanish troops to retake Ochoa. Galvez could not muster enough men to take the fort back by force, so he tried a bit of guile. In the hills around the fort, Galvez had his men maintain large numbers of campfires at night, hoping the enemy would think their numbers were much greater than they actually were. On November 29th, his men assaulted the fort. The British didn't just give up, they were able to fend off the attack. However, the British garrison was also being decimated by tropical diseases. After fending off the attack, the British made the decision to withdraw and retreated to their ships. In the end, the battle was of little consequence, other than the fact that the British captured two Spanish treasure ships carrying about $3 million worth of silver. But the incident highlights that Britain had to worry about outposts all over the empire, and also hitting France and Spain wherever it could, in order to keep the enemy deploying its forces in far-off colonies as well. For men like Washington and Clinton, New York was the center of the universe and the focus of their attention. For officials in London, New York was just another British outpost. It needed attention like all the other outposts, but could not be the sole focus or even take a disproportionate amount of resources. Clinton would always be disappointed in the numbers of reinforcements he received, and believe them inadequate to his mission. The attitude in London, however, was that, yeah, everyone would like more soldiers everywhere, but that just isn't possible. You need to make do with what you have, and hopefully you can impress us with what you can do with them. By late 1779, General Clinton had accepted that he would not receive sufficient reinforcements from London. As I said, his promised 6,000 new soldiers in 1779 resulted in him receiving only 3,800, and those that did arrive spread sickness through the ranks, meaning that the reinforcements actually led to a reduction in the total number of men fit for duty. Clinton decided that if he was going to get anything done, he needed to consolidate his forces. With the British success in Savannah, Clinton saw his best option in the South. Now, he couldn't abandon New York. The occupation there kept the main Continental Army pinned down, it also prevented New England from considering another offensive into Canada. So, the British would stay in New York. The occupation of Newport, Rhode Island, however, would come to an end. 
Recall that Clinton had been ordered to take Newport back in 1776 when the commander, General Howe, wanted to get Clinton out of the way while Howe was pushing the Americans across New Jersey. Newport was a British toehold into New England and provided a saltwater port in the event that New York Harbor froze over. Clinton had taken the island, then probably sailed off for London to make one of his early attempts at resigning. By late 1779, there was no plan to attack New England, and most of the British Navy had moved to the West Indies. Newport, primarily garrisoned by Hessians, had become increasingly unpleasant. The island required that food and fuel be shipped in from elsewhere. As a result, the garrison frequently went on reduced rations and often went cold for lack of firewood. Further, the possibility of the French Navy's return made Newport a sitting duck without sufficient British ships to support it. Given that the New York garrison had so many sick and the Newport garrison would provide a valuable supplement of troops in case the Americans and French decided to launch a joint attack there, Clinton made the decision to consolidate his forces. In October, General Clinton had ordered the evacuation of the 3,500-man garrison at Newport. Then he received word that the French fleet had attacked Halifax. With that, Clinton believed that perhaps Newport would be more important and debated with Admiral Arbuthnot whether they should hold off on the evacuation after all. Arbuthnot disagreed, and the two officers squabbled. In the end, it turned out that Halifax was not under threat, and that the British garrison at Newport had already destroyed much of its own defenses, meaning that if the French fleet did attack there again, they would be in a terrible position. So, Clinton went ahead with the evacuation after all. Because the British did not want Newport to be of any use to the enemy, they chose to destroy the town on their way out. They burned hundreds of houses, filled in wells, destroyed the docks, disassembled all their fortifications, even toppled the lighthouse. Nearly every tree and fence had already disappeared during the occupation's desperate search for firewood. Any area farms that still had crops or cattle on them had those confiscated by the departing army. General Richard Prescott, who had resumed command of Newport after being kidnapped and exchanged, ordered his patrols to shoot any civilians who appeared on the street or at their windows as the soldiers marched to their ships in preparation for evacuation to New York. Many residents who had abandoned Newport during the occupation never returned, and the city suffered damage from which it never really recovered. Part of Clinton's reasons for abandoning Newport and consolidating his forces at New York was also his hopes of launching a large expedition against Charleston, South Carolina. That was one of several offenses that Lord Germain had been pushing Clinton to undertake. The success of the British forces in breaking the siege of Savannah against a combined French and military force, and the near capture of Charleston months earlier with only a small force that had initially launched as a foraging expedition, gave hope to Clinton that perhaps Charleston could fall. Having received 3,500 soldiers from Newport and about 3,800 reinforcements from Britain and another 2,000 from St. Lucia, Clinton thought that finally he had enough soldiers to defend New York and send a large expedition to secure the South. Clinton could have deployed General Cornwallis with a sizable expedition to South Carolina, but Clinton wanted to take Charleston personally. 
This was an opportunity to redeem his failure in 1776 when he failed to capture Charleston at that time. In that attempt, Clinton's attack force could not take down Fort Moultrie, which was then called Fort Sullivan, and for years afterward, Clinton was deeply embarrassed by his failure to defeat such a bunch of inexperienced militia and would tell pretty much anyone who would listen how the failure was really someone else's fault. This new expedition against Charleston would redeem that scar from his reputation. So, on December 26, 1779, General Clinton, along with General Cornwallis and about 7,600 soldiers aboard 90 transports, left New York City bound for Charleston. Hessian General Wilhelm von Neiphausen assumed command of the garrison at New York. I'll have a little more to say about General Neiphausen's command of New York after the main British army leaves uh, in a few weeks, and we'll also, of course, cover the attack on Charleston probably a few weeks after that. Next week, though, I want to return to the American side, where the Continental Congress has to deal with the delicate issue of conscription, and Pennsylvania passes a law to phase out slavery in that state. This episode is brought to you by eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show. My thanks to Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club. Trey Nance, George Davis, and Mike Hager. Thanks also to Paul Kallenberger, who joined the Privy Council level in February. Paul has made a number of one-time PayPal donations in the past, but is now on board with Patreon. Also joining as standard bearers in February were Chris Carfania and S.P. O'Brien. As with all my Patreon supporters at the $10 or higher level, they will receive a new magnet each month, with a Revolutionary War-era flag. As those of you who received the magnets already know, I send the magnet stuck to a sheet of paper that gives some background on the flag that you receive. I want to thank supporter Lester Mallet, who is not only a Standard Bearer supporter and who recently gave another one-time PayPal contribution, but was also kind enough to send some of his glue-fast glue dots, along with an applicator, to make it easier for me to stick those flags onto the paper. I also want to give thanks to Richard Shu for a one-time PayPal contribution. I also have to issue an apology or at least an explanation this week. Last week, I failed to release an episode. I've been releasing weekly every single week since I started this podcast nearly five years ago until last week. 
I've been struggling to keep up with those weekly episodes and issued a challenge a few months ago that if I could get 300 Patreon supporters, I would quit my day job and devote myself full-time to this podcast. Unfortunately, we haven't been able to reach that goal, and my day job required that I be away from home for over a week last week, including working over the entire weekend. So it left me no time to complete a new episode, and unfortunately I had to miss. Uh, I should also mention I'm starting a new day job this coming week, which will probably be pretty demanding of my time as well. So I wish I could say missing last week's episode was a one-off, and that I don't see it happening again, but with my schedule, I really can't make that promise. I guess I think it's better to skip a week occasionally, rather than trying to produce an episode that has not had sufficient time and effort put into it. I hope you all understand. Also, if my voice sounds a bit off this week, I've caught a bug while traveling last week, and I'm still getting over it. If my voice sounds a bit scratchy, that's why. I am still planning to go to the American Revolution Conference in Williamsburg on the weekend of March 18th. Hopefully some of you can make it there. I am also still planning on speaking at the American Revolution Authors Conference in Quakertown, Pennsylvania on April 23rd. Uh, The latter one is a free all-day event where you can listen live to talks by some top American Revolution authors and me for some reason. So, if you're in the area and can make it to Quakertown on April 23rd, I'd love to see you there. If you want to reserve a spot, again, it's free, but you have to make a reservation, go to nathanspapers.com for more details. And if you sign up for my mailing list, which you can do at amrevpodcast.com, I will include a few more reminders about these live events and send you links so that you can go directly to them. I also have a number of American Revolution Roundtable events that you're more than welcome to join me at. So yeah, please sign up for my mailing list so you can keep on top of all these things. This week I covered British plans for 1780, and the big plan, of course, was the capture of Charleston, South Carolina. For General Clinton, who was extremely frustrated by the lack of support that he was getting in London in terms of manpower and the expectations that were being placed upon him, Charleston became a focal point of his plans, and I really think a big part of that was the fact that he wanted to make up for the fact that he had failed to capture it in 1776. By the time Clinton was making these plans, the British, of course, had already taken and held Savannah for a year and had almost taken Charleston a few months earlier without even having much of an invasion force. As I said, London had also pretty much given up on New England and the Middle Colonies by 1780, but they did hope to solidify control of the southern colonies, which would in turn reinforce their control of important island colonies in the West Indies. At this point in the war, the question for the British leadership was really how much of the South they could salvage. They had no plans to renew the war in the North, at least until France and Spain had ended their war with Britain. I will, of course, cover the Charleston campaign in a future episode. Of course, many of you know that General Charles Cornwallis led the Southern Campaign after Charleston, and so my book recommendation this week is one about Cornwallis. It's called Cornwallis and the War for Independence by Franklin and Mary Wickwire. It's a well-written book that looks at Cornwallis during the Revolutionary War years. 
I particularly like this book rather than some other Cornwallis biographies because it really does focus on the Revolutionary War years. Cornwallis, of course, went on to have another major career as Viceroy of India. So if you want to learn more about Cornwallis's entire life, there may be some better biographies for you. But if you want to focus on his Revolutionary War years, the Wickwire book is a good one. And Wickwire also wrote a second book about Cornwallis's years in India, if you want to read a book that focuses on that. Wickwire's book about Cornwallis is over 50 years old. It was first published in 1971, so it's pretty hard to find these days. If you can get a copy, maybe you have a good library, or maybe you happen to see it somewhere, it's a pretty good read. There's also an e-copy available on archive.org if you want to take a look at it there. My online recommendation is a short biography about Admiral Marriott Arbuthnot. This is really just a brief summary of his life, but the reason I made it this week's recommendation is that it comes from a website that I also want to recommend more generally called morethannelson.com. This is really a great resource for many things related to the naval history of the Revolutionary War. Of course, the site covers some other areas of British naval history as well. So if you're interested in naval history, you might want to check out morethannelson.com. My question this week comes from Matthew Domer, who asks, In the modern age, we teach soldiers that we will risk anything to recover wounded, leave no man behind, and have even committed substantial resources to the recovery of the dead. Contrast this with the routine leaving of wounded, even low-rank company officers, on the field during the Revolutionary War era. Well, Matthew, you're absolutely correct that our modern military has an ethic of leaving no man behind. That is, soldiers will go to great lengths to make sure they do not leave a fellow soldier behind to be captured by the enemy. This includes evacuating the wounded and even securing the bodies of fallen comrades. Now, this is an ethic that has evolved over time and certainly was no part of either side of the American Revolution. The dead and wounded were routinely left behind in the 18th century battlefields, and units did not put much effort into locating anyone who was missing. I haven't come across any real studies on this, but I suspect this this was even worse among British and Hessians than it was among Americans. You have to remember that many British and Hessian enlisted soldiers were there against their will. Desertion rates were obscenely high when compared to modern armies, American soldiers were probably a bit better about looking out after their own, only because many units had men who were related to one another, who who grew up together in the same small towns and probably had closer bonds. But the exigencies of the 18th century battlefield also meant that recovery of wounded was much riskier and more difficult than it might be today. There were no helicopters to swoop in to the rescue, Even horse-drawn carts might not be available to remove the wounded from the battlefield. Trying to carry a wounded comrade on your back would be difficult for soldiers even in the best of health. Malnourished and exhausted soldiers had even less hope of such a feat. Any attempts to do so might result in them being captured themselves. The result was that an ethic of leaving behind the wounded was the norm one had to consider the good of the unit as a whole in such cases. 
There might have been some hope that the enemy would tend to the wounded, but even in cases where there was not much hope of that, armies really did not hesitate to leave men behind. This is not to say that soldiers at this time were more heartless than they are today. They simply didn't have the means to engage in effective rescues. If there were carts and enough time to carry the wounded with the army, they usually would, although even then some wounded were left behind because the trip in the wagon would probably increase their chances of dying. Their best chance was often local medical treatment provided by the enemy. In terms of bringing back bodies, there was no practical way to carry large numbers of corpses across a long distance. Even top generals tended to be buried locally. When General Hugh Mercer died at Princeton, for example, he was buried nearby in Philadelphia rather than being carried home to Virginia. It really didn't become the norm to bring home fallen soldiers until after World War II. If you have a question that you would like me to answer, please reach out to me on Facebook, Twitter, or Quora, or you can simply email me. My address is on the website at amrevpodcast.com. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The Civil War and Reconstruction was a pivotal era in American history. When a war was fought to save the Union and to free the slaves. And when the work to rebuild the nation after that war was over turned into a struggle to guarantee liberty and justice for all Americans. I'm Tracy. And I'm Rich. And we want to invite you to join us as we take an in-depth look at this pivotal era in American history. Look for the Civil War and Reconstruction wherever you find your podcasts.